Welcome to Saucer Cinema, the podcast about UFOs, aliens, and otherworldly phenomena in film, TV, and other media. I'm your host, Alex. This week, I open the pod bay doors to welcome writer and director Mark Sletsky to discuss an obscure little film called 2001, A Space Odyssey, directed by Stanley Kubrick. everybody. This week I have Mark Slitsky on the pod. Mark is a writer and director from Montreal. Hi, thanks for having me. Hey, today we're going to talk about finally an actually good movie, uh, 2001 <laughs> Space Odyssey. <laughs> we were really running the gamut of quality on this podcast. I mean, <laughs> um, I mean, how many good movies are there with aliens in them? Yeah. Uh, I guess it's probably a lot. There are a lot. There's a lot of good science fiction movies. I, I take that back. Um, but I think they're outweighed by the bad ones, probably pretty heavily. Yeah. But you might say that about all movies, I guess. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, same you could say the same about gangsters or cowboys or... Um, yeah. Yeah, any, any kind of subject uh, or any kind of, like, well-worn trope. But uh, I think this is probably... I mean, if you're going to talk about quality or we're basically in the top tier of alien movies i mean it really is like the best alien movie ever made i think and yet you never see an alien in it which we'll we'll get into yeah this is like like the first legitimate like science fiction film that we (laughs) i've actually covered on this podcast most of the other ones are either most of the ones i've done so far are like cheesy documentaries or tv movies or you know uh weird but i mean that's cool because like honestly like what um what those sort of bad movies uh and i'll like put that term in quotes because the term is really relative but what they tell us about you know the cultural preoccupations with aliens and ufos Mm -hmm. uh are just as interesting as what the good movies can tell us i I guess it's a bit of a trope to say that that you know that they sort of reflect the our culture's uh, anxieties and preoccupations in a very naked way that's true they do and sometimes in very like weird peculiar um specific ways that are interesting yeah, I mean, like, everyone knows the whole thing about Invasion of the Body Snatchers, like, the first one being about the communism, and the seven, 70s one being about the, you know, 70s paranoia. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it, it's almost a cliche to say that at this point, but it, it, it's not untrue. You should do the 70s Invasion of the Body Snatcher. That's one of my favorite movies, actually. The, uh, 70s. So I, I, I have a personal story about that movie. Before we get to 2001, is that my parents went to see it, like, the night before my brother was born. And he's actually named after the Donald Sutherland character in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Matthew. <laughs> and I, when I found that out, I was so jealous of him. Yeah, that's pretty dope. <laughs> that's such a good, that's a... Such a great name story. Yeah. Well, I mean, my parents had a story. I mean, this really isn't connected to me specifically, but it is such a, it's a parents going to a sci-fi movie story, so I might as well tell it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Okay, so like right after my parents... Uh, 
started dating, they went to go see Alien, the original Alien, you know, 1979. And uh, my dad always says that, you know, every time we went to see it, no one knew what the Alien looked like. You know, it was like a complete mystery. It was really cool to see it for the first time and everything. But then I asked my mom about the time they saw it. And my mom says, all your dad was talking about when we came out of that movie was how uh, Sigourney Weaver looked in her underwear at the end of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, so 2001. So for me, this is a really important film growing up. Um, and, you know, it's like I'm sometimes a little hesitant to talk about 2001 because I don't want to sound like it's like one of those like Kubrick guys, you know, who like has like one director and, you know, constantly praising the genius of. But I think 2001 is worth it. Um, so like one of my early movie memories, I was watching it on TV with my dad and him like wanting to show it to me and, and me just being so like amazed by the strangeness of it and 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 the weirdness of that final sequence in the like hotel room mm-hmm. um and so it, it has always captured my imagination and, and it's one of those works of art that i can keep coming back to and always find something new in. And i remember sort of rediscovering it maybe about eight or ten years ago and just being like wow there's so much silence in this movie and like there's so much uh detail and the atmosphere is so unlike any other film. And so I just, I really just think there's like, you know, it, it's really kind of unsurpassed in, in so many ways. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think it's like one, also one of those movies that really like tries to address in some way, the, the big questions about existence and stuff. And like the gamble actually pays off, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of movies that delve into these matters and, uh, um, less uh, less effective ways, and this one actually, I mean, it actually achieves something. It is kind of like a very special movie to me too. Like I went to see this finally in a theater a couple years ago. It was a digital print, but it was on a big IMAX screen and everything. It was really a pretty amazing experience. I actually literally literally cried at the end and everything. So. <laughs> it was like really I had an I'd experience seeing the theater once that almost made me cry, but I'll t- but for other reasons. Um. <laughs> So at TIFF, the Toronto Film Festival, uh, they have a theater in Toronto and uh, they own a bunch of 70 millimeter prints. They own a 70 millimeter print of 2001 that they bring out occasionally. Uh, and I was in town, I was in Toronto and it was playing and I was like, okay, I'm gonna do it. I've never seen this film on 70 millimeter. And I went and it's a beautiful theater with like beautiful sound. And, you know, as I said before, there's so much silence in the movie, you know, mm-hmm. or, or just breathing and space. You know, it's one of the only films that has like the guts to acknowledge that there's no sound in space. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. To this day, I mean, which is a really hard thing to do cinematically, obviously, because sound is such a big part of cinema. Um, but I was sitting next to this guy who was like slowly and methodically eating a <laughs> gigantic bag of popcorn through the film. And during, I mean, uh, on this like really steady cadence of like, <gasps> oh my God. Pause. Like one at a time, you know, as opposed to me when I, when I grab it by the fistful and I'm done by the, like the end of the trailers. Yeah. This guy kept it up through this three hour movie. And even after the intermission, he came back and resumed eating his popcorn. Like I thought by for sure by the intermission, like it would be over. Um, God. Anyway, it was glorious to see it in a movie theater, but it was almost ruined oh. by the, by my indignation at this loud popcorn eater. Oh my God. Yeah. That that's I'm so sorry. Oh man. <laughs> but it's, well, suffice to say, I've seen it in a lot of different formats. You know, I, I think probably the original one uh, time I saw it was on TV or on VHS. Oh yeah. And I like own it on Blu-ray now. I've seen it in the theater, and um, 
you know, it, it's good in any of those forms, I found. But to, but to circle back to what you said about it, you know, uh, attempting something transcendental and actually working, you know, I would probably argue or at least speculate that part of that has to do with the fact that, you know, it's a, it's a collaboration between uh, Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, who was, you know, the most science-minded of science fiction writers and very, very grounded, yeah. um, you know, to the point where he invented basically geocommunication satellites in an essay. Um, and who had a very weird and crazy life living in Sri Lanka and like, um, you know, he, a really interesting and strange person. Um, but, but who was, you know, very much had his feet on the ground and his head in the stars. Um, and, and I think that's what keeps it from drifting too far into like uh, woo woo, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. Like it's like the it's, there's that very rigorous attention to scientific detail and verisimilitude, and uh, and then there. I mean, they save all the good, juicy, mystical weirdness from the end, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, it really works. I mean, I I feel like I'm almost not worthy to talk about this movie. I mean, because <laughs> there's so many things going on with it. Um, but uh, there's a really interesting book about its uh, making, which I'm. You know, I confess I didn't finish in time for this recording, but I'm in the middle of reading. Yeah. Uh, it's called like a Space Audio, the Making of a Masterpiece or something. Um, and yeah. I'm sort of, all I can really go into in terms of interesting details from the book is, is the sort of courtship between Kubrick and Clark because um, Kubrick was just sort of making his name as a, as a filmmaker then. And he, you know, I think Dr. Strangelove had just come out and that really sort of positioned him as a, you know, not just a, a director for hire. Uh, but someone with a, his own interesting creative vision. And speaking of aliens, the, the really good tidbit I got from this book was that um, uh, Dr. Strangelove was originally going to be sort of like bookended by these aliens who had discovered um, the like sort of last recordings of the human race after a nuclear war. And it was sort of going to be narrated by these aliens who had, you know, found this, this, uh, you know, relic of a, a completely uh, extinct civilization, namely our civilization. And that kind of blew my mind. Yeah. And then like later, I feel like sort of AI kind of absorbed that a little bit, that idea. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking the exact same thing. Like the end the end of it, like where you have those, I guess, post-human, post-robot, post-whatever beings coming to scan the earth and find the main little robot kid character. Um, yeah, that's very reminiscent of that... Uh, proposed ending for dr strange it was never filmed though was it no i know it wasn't filmed okay. but uh but that's sort of at the same time that kubrick was like developing 2001 uh, um <clears throat> arthur c clark was living in sri lanka then ceylon um with his partner who was a filmmaker actually who made all these like like he made all these like really interesting sri lankese films that are now lost uh oh, but yeah, that involved yeah, apparently yeah. these like really interesting scuba diving like setups and uh, really, you know, there's a definitely an interesting story to be told there. And and uh, Clark was like dealing with like a, this like horrible divorce um, where he like owed all this money to his ex-wife and like his royalties were getting garnished. And, you know, like, uh, you know, here is someone who like later in life uh, was open about his sexuality. But at the time, I guess, you know, it was like the 50s and 60s and he had gotten oh, married yeah, to a woman. And yeah. It ended ended badly. Um but uh, so and so he was like really anxious to work with Kubrick because he thought this was a sort of ticket into Hollywood into and out of like the financial penury he was in from yeah. his divorce, uh, which is such a like ignoble 
beginning to you know such a cosmic and transcendental story of like well, a guy every... desperately trying to deal with his divorce yeah everybody's got to start somewhere you start throwing up the bone and then a few millennia later it's a uh it's a spaceship <laughs> exactly i mean and it's so you know we should talk about the sort of the aliens in this movie because that's sort of the uh the premise of the podcast, I guess, is to talk about aliens in film. And as I mentioned before, you never actually see any aliens in this. It is a great choice because I mean, I remember, I do remember reading that they went through a shit ton of alien designs and just could not settle on something that worked. And figured... I'd be so interested to seeing those designs. Yeah, I remember seeing a few of them, and a few of them were actually kind of like humanoid type things a little bit but then of course you know i think probably arthur c clark pooped with that you know scientifically inaccurate but um well you know my whole thing is i uh i really hate when aliens are humanoid because there's like so many interesting like you know choices that you can make and exactly. it, it drives me crazy like there's so many ways life could evolve for all we know aliens don't even talk using sound maybe they use sense like maybe they uh, you know wouldn't even be recognizable as life to us. Now, I understand that in making a film, there's certain constraints and I'm a huge Star Trek fan and I can, I'm totally on board with all the aliens in Star Trek being people with stuff stuck on their faces, but it's always like a bit diminishing to me when you see the humanoid alien. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. Like I remember, um, what was it? The, the Steven Spielberg war of the worlds, which, uh, I, I like a lot, but the, uh, mm -hmm. but like, you know, like they have these really cool alien looking tripods and then, yeah, these aliens come out and they're just like they got cute little big old eyes you know and it's just like ah oh, come on man you can do better than that <laughs> yeah i mean i you know i do cut it like the older the guy you get the more slack i cut it because you do have to have something that is like recognizable by the viewer as like an expressive intelligence and it's really hard to do that without without eyes and a mouth otherwise right. it kind of just looks like an object and there isn't that sort of uncanny valley thing where you kind of, it needs to look somewhat human for us to be even scared by it or intrigued by it. Yeah, I think that's why the alien <clears throat> works so well, like, because it has, you know, like, recognizable human qualities. It's got teeth. <laughs> yeah. yeah Although I'm always a little sad that the alien has two arms and two legs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but I would... do sort of ascribe it to, well, if it incubated in a human, then maybe it would take on its form. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, I, I I did like how the thing uh, went around that by just like mixing everything up like like a blender, you know, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when you do see something, it's like these crazy like wire-like legs and like um, claws or teeth or yeah. tentacles or yeah. It's just like what what did that come from? You know, yeah, it's pretty dope. But what um, you know, when you get back to two thousand and one, like what do you? The one thing that you well, not the one thing, but like the major most iconic thing that you see of the aliens is, is a big square, right? No, a big, big rectangle, yeah. a big black rectangle, the monolith, which I think in the novelization, which I haven't read for 20 years at least, um, is described as a sort of Swiss army knife for the aliens. It is a piece of technology um, that they leave behind to accelerate the growth of intelligent uh, or the evolution of intelligent species. Yeah, and... Uh... And we don't know anything about, you know, these aliens, they could be long extinct themselves. Um, these right. could be relics they left behind millions of years ago. Um, but you know that they left, the, you know, that they were, uh, there was a monolith present at an important part of early human humanity's evolution, uh, being the, the sort of like uh, the ape scene. I, I don't even know what you want to call them, ape or, you know, scenes or hominins or yeah yeah exactly like so you get so you sort of 
you take from the film that that accelerated humanity's um, tool making capabilities and weapon making capabilities. Um, And then the idea is that they bury another monolith on the moon with the idea that once humans are advanced enough to make it to the moon and to detect this thing and to expose it, like to, 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 to dig it up, that that'll mark the next stage and that the you know the signal gets sent from that monolith to the monolith floating around jupiter or saturn depending on whether it's the book or the film and that will initiate the next stage um it's not as spelled out in the movie like you know there is the scene on the moon where they um you know they're they're going to visit the monolith they take the pictures themselves with it and then they all like there's like a sound and they're all like clutching their heads and that's supposed to be the signal that's going out it's not really explained in the film but that's what's happening yeah I mean, they do kind of explain it with the uh, the guy with the recording towards the end. With um... oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. He sort of like gives the whole plot dump. Yeah, yeah. And um, but yeah, I do. I, that's actually one thing I do like uh, so much about 2001 is that it is such a visual and, and audio uh, experience. Versus, I mean, it's obviously very. I mean, a lot of thought being put into it, but like it really is meant to operate on a visual and. Uh, like audio kind of level with with the uh, viewer. Yeah, I was going through it recently um, for screenshots for an issue of my newsletter yeah. about 2001 I put out. Okay. Every frame was just so gorgeous. Like the, you know, the the industrial design in the film is just like unparalleled. I mean, they have the, actually they, literal like like space engineers like working on this. Right, right. Yeah, and it looks like it. I mean, it really look like it just it just looks so great. Yeah, like the colors and the you know the the stuff on the screens you see um so yeah and so so you know this newsletter i i put out recently about it was was about you know this my latest sort of obsession with this film is how much of, about food it is and how each you know there's like relatively few sequences in the film compared to how long it is yeah. you know there's like five or six or seven um like really scenes yeah um which is really interesting for such a long movie. The only other movie I can think of that really feels like that is *Inglorious Bastards*, mm-hmm. um, which is also each scene is kind of centered around like characters having a drink together. Yeah, um, yeah, that is true. That is true. I mean, I it really hammers home how how, how central food is to uh, human ex- life, existence of life on Earth. Really. It, yeah, and uh, apparently Kubrick was quite fast. You know, that's why he was fascinated with food because he thought it was just this like thing we could not escape as humanity. Yeah. So the, the the first, you know, the sequence of the dawn of man, as it's called in the film is, you know, involves them like eating, like they're eating like grass and then they learn how to use the tool and now they're eating meat yeah. and now they're fighting each other. And, you know, then cut to the future where, uh, you know, we're on a, on a spaceship where we, uh, he's got, I think he has a meal with him on that first shuttle flight, right? On his lap. I, uh, I think he, I think he might. Um, look it up now um, no he doesn't in the shuttle but then like he gets off the shuttle he meets someone there and he's like do we have time for breakfast oh uh, yeah, yeah and then I, he gets on another shuttle where there's like the like the, the food that's just like yeah. it's totally abstracted that's like pictures of food uh with straws okay. and then he goes to the bathroom which you know you could you could say is like directly related to him eating yeah. um and then they take the they take the moon shuttle uh the moon bus to the monolith and they have sandwiches and it's like there's so few conversations between humans in this movie of any substance and they're all so mundane like they're just so like affectless um and they like the the most excited they get is like talking about how the the sandwiches are getting better yeah like (laughs) 
they're like, oh yeah, they're getting, getting pretty good. The chicken flavor. Um, and then we cut to, you know, the, um, the Jupiter mission. And the first thing we see is them eating this like sort of paste like food. Yeah. It that actually doesn't look really too bad. I, have to... I don't know. It looked gross <laughs> to me. But, I mean, yeah, it looked like it looked like hospital, like really bad hospital. It looks like hospital food. Yeah. And then there's like a birthday cake scene. Well, that's um, true. Yeah. With the Haywood Floyd's uh, daughter on back on Earth. No, no, that is actually a different birthday scene. So that that's oh, when he's oh, talking to her. Yeah. But, oh, um, yeah, it, it's either Bowman his, or Frank Poole who like watches him a happy birthday. Yeah. And he just like stares at them like with dead eyes. Yeah. <laughs> and then like puts his like math, face mask on again. Yeah, yeah. I mean that 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 is one really interesting thing about the movie. Every most of the humans, pretty much all the humans in the movie are basically they're just they're very stiff, like set in their ways. They're like they're just almost they're just totally movie. affectless, like except for Haywood Floyd, who's just but he has sort of like a corporate jovialness to him. Yeah, like when he runs into the Russians and he's like on the phone with his daughter, he's like he's just yeah. like friendly in a way that like a corporate dad would be. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, there, I think there's a little bit of uh, like that like submerged hostility with the with the russian guys they're talking to you know when they're doing the oh yeah thing. no there's a great sort of scene of them sort of sparring where the russian guys want to know if there's an epidemic yeah. and he can't say anything but it's like it's very diplomatic you know yeah um but he has he's genial i guess in a way that like frank Poole or dave bowman are just like not genial at all yeah i mean it's, it's really interesting it's like almost as if like mankind is like at the last they're they're, they're barely human anymore uh. <laughs> yeah, and he and exactly, and he, and you know, it's also interesting. Like Kier Delea, like he was like this was like the beginning and end of his you know, career. Such a big film, yeah. And he's not gone to do anything of of substance really after this. Um, yeah. I mean, can you think of any other great Kier Delea roles? <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> but you know what? If you're gonna have one big role, yeah, well be in this one. <laughs> well, you know, intersecting with Kubrick like, had like a weird effect on a lot of people's careers. I think. Yeah. Um, there was that one guy whose name I forget who was an actor in his films and then like became like his personal assistant for the rest of his life and sort oh, of like yeah, yeah, ruined yeah, his yeah. life being Kubrick's like body man um, <laughs> I don't want to say ruined because he chose to do it uh, but it did seem like he just basically gave himself over to Kubrick <laughs> as yeah. his tool for the rest of his life there was that movie about it called Film Worker okay yeah I, I, I've heard about it I have not seen it but... it's a super interesting doc um and then, okay, in the final scene of the film, when he's in, like, the hotel room set, um, he's eating and yeah. he's drinking wine. And it's actually the most human film food in the entire film. Like, the, the, the food that we most would think of as, like, normal, a normal meal takes place in this alien environment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that we're, you know, and then that, that was a part of the film that was, like, the most fascinating to me as a kid. It was just so weird and so echoey. And, and the filmmaking techniques were so interesting. Like... You, you would you see you see like david bowman and then he look he, like he'll hear a sound and he'll look and you'll follow the eye line and it'll cut to him older it's like he's looking at himself so he's using just like very kubrick is using very like uh elemental techniques of like editing and composition to create a really eerie effect yeah um it conveys that concept of time being uh not, not working the same as it does uh with where you know our, our existence yeah which is something that film i think can really uniquely do in in like a, a very special way compared to other like art and it, you know in the actual novelization he finds like a bunch of food in a fridge but it's all this like blue sort of 
like styrofoam <laughs> substance that he can yeah. eat and tastes really good and fulfills all of his like nourishment and but it's like packaged like food and you get the sense that like the monolith or the aliens like know what human food looks like like from the outside and they know what human bodies need to survive but they can't like cook you like a, a chicken dinner they can just like provide you with like a substance yeah, that will yeah. nourish you i've not read the novelization in a long time either but i remember um like the like he, in that hotel room like i think one detail that uh clark puts in there is like he looks at there's like a bunch of books on shelves in that room or something and he looks at the books and they're like they're like all blank or all weird they're not like they don't actually have like actual letters and words that you would recognize in there they're just like you know just it's just like the outside superficial um idea of a book kind of reminds me of like when you see a book in a dream and you pick it up and it's just like there's no like it's all like garbled or weird or i, I was always obsessed with this idea from that sequence of like what aliens think humans like a human environment is mm -hmm. so for them it's like oh it's like a fancy hotel room but it's this really weird version of a fancy hotel room it's like zoos and zoo animals like putting them in like an environment that's like sort of modeled after like their yes natural habitat that's cool. but that hotel so i use that hotel room as a reference i was making a, a science fiction short called final offer oh, um which takes very place funny like short, by the way i love that thank you thank you go check it go google my name in final offer if you're listening to this and you want to see it um, but I, I directly use that as a uh, as a reference because I wanted it's it's set in like a room that an alien that aliens make for for humans like that uh, is supposed to be like a where important business might take place. Uh, so that was kind of my reference was was the 2001 yeah, yeah. Uh, hotel room. The parts that get this attention in the movie obviously are rightly the the main bulk of the film with Hal and the discovery and uh, the ship. But I actually really kind of am very interested in the Haywood Floyd section um, for a lot of reasons. Like, I, I really like how it de de depicts this. I mean, because it, it's obviously in this version of the future, there's still a Cold War going on. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, like, I, I, I do like this whole concept. It ties into the more, like, crank cranky conspiracy aspect of my, the <laughs> stuff we cover on this podcast. But, like, this whole idea of, like, they're using this uh, pandemic a oh, great Ken, i'm not trying to make any parallels to what's going on now i'm just using the example it's in the movie uh, what are you saying about the pandemic yeah <laughs> yeah they're yeah, no, they're, there's a, they're, yeah they're, they're, they claim there's an outbreak to sort of hide yeah yeah but which is actually have you seen for all mankind um no i have not is that the so um... uh, this is a show on apple um and it's by ronald d moore who was the battlestar galactica guy oh yeah 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 okay yeah my parent my dad or my mom was telling me about this show this it's song. quite i have to say it's really good and the premise okay. is that the space race never ended oh. uh you know like and that and that it was sort of part of the cold war and that there was like a uh there was like a soviet moon base and an american moon base and there was like there's like hostilities and tensions between them and it kind of reminds me of that. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think it's a great premise for a show because it doesn't get too, sci like it's sort of like, here's how the technology would have evolved if like tons of money just kept pouring into NASA. Yeah. Um, we might have like personal computers a bit sooner. Like it's 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 subtle, but, but really interesting. And it is sort of a similar setup of like this, you know, Cold War on the moon bases. Oh, that's but they're moon bases too. with like three people on them. They're not like, you know, little cities on the moon. It's yeah, like, yeah. It's like the International Space Station, right? Yeah, yeah. Just like a skeleton crew there. Mm -hmm. um, I really like the uh, that that section because it just it it's because it's just like this very bureaucratic '60s way of dealing with 
discovery of like uh, alien life you know like well it's the way they handle it is it's just, it's just interesting it feels like pretty realistic too but also just very funny yeah well it kind of reminds me of like you know when they when they released like the letter that like nixon was going to have read if the astronauts died on the moon oh yeah yeah and you're like okay here's how the u.s government would have dealt with this kind of like space tragedy <laughs> um and you just think about you know the the massive layers of bureaucracy and the messaging and like um yeah that's just always fascinating to th- just to think of like how our human systems would like deal with this kind of thing yeah yeah i mean it, it, make, it always makes you think like how they would break it like because obviously they're really just trying to keep everything under wraps for the time being as they try and figure this out in the movie i'm like so what is their plan for releasing it like but then ever... when you see like what happened what's happening now with like the ufo stuff that's being released yeah. and you see people like harry reader like the people who are like at the top level layers of government being like we don't know what it was <laughs> like yeah. like any sort of idea that there's this like government like secret go- you know deep state keeping yeah. a secret from the aliens is like <laughs> i feel like that idea of like the omniscient all-powerful government has been just so destroyed <laughs> in the past decade yeah well um, I, I i agree but i also kind of disagree because of like my dad was in the the military for a long time, and uh, he he has some really interesting takes about. Oh, like, do tell. Yeah, well, I mean, he was because you know he was uh, he was in military intelligence um, for the first part of his career, and uh, hmm. and he um, he tells a lot of interesting stories about like uh, he was in NATO. He was stationed with NATO in Italy, and uh, he um, was very close to some uh, major. A close call nuclear events and things like that that didn't really get out <laughs> okay yeah there's a lot of stuff uh, i mean so i'm just saying like it doesn't well i yeah i agree like the all-powerful government because there really isn't one government either like right the, the national security state is not really a state it's a bunch of little tiny uh competing f- fiefdoms oh yeah just... furiously competing bureaucracies yeah yeah so it wouldn't actually surprise me if one of these things actually does have control over the secret. Right, agent. right. And it's like holding it tight. Yeah, yeah. That actually is pretty plausible to me. Especially like if, if like private industry is involved, you could just bury that shit real deep under all kinds of things. Now, again, I'm not saying this is actually true. I just think, you know, I'm just saying it's not completely crazy, but... Um, but it's true. That like, so I've done a lot of research on like... Um, uh, espionage and yeah. cryptography and stuff for for this tech podcast that I write as sort of my side gig. Yeah. Um, and so I was researching the history of cryptography and it's really interesting because like in the 60s, the NSA um, was so secretive that most people had never even heard of it. Like even people in government, yeah. they called it no such agency. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and if you were doing any sort of in research into cryptography, like even just sort of like amateur, like or like you know, at a university publishing a paper about how to like encrypt a message, they would show up, and basically like they could get your funding pulled, or more likely they would like bring you into the fold, and you would never be heard from again. Like not that they would like kill you, but your your research would never be heard from again. <laughs> you would yeah. go on the other side of the wall, and you'd be doing research for them, and you would never publish again. That that whole that I mean that very like we can just take your info and and bury it and we'll just use it and uh when we and it might never ever see the light of day that's that's the crazy part about it like i just wonder like if that's what happens to alien contact with us that's really fucking sad (laughs) (laughs) but um 
but in the movie i i do like i do like that little that very like like just barely concealed hostility between uh, Haywood Floyd and the Russian. Totally, but they, like diplomatic on the on the surface, they're like, "Oh, it's so great to see you. How's your wife?" Yeah. And then he walks away, and they all like roll their eyes at him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. He's like, "Yeah, they they, they know something's up, but they they want to know what the fuck it is." And he's like, "They're like, oh." Um, but yeah, I, I then of course that points us to the next part of the movie, the the really the the meat of the movie, I would say. How nine thousand uh, Frank Poole and David Bowman, right? And and uh, David Bowman, yeah. 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 And this is, of course, you know, I mean, Hal, of course, being like, ironically, being one of the most human characters in the film. I, that's one of my favorite aspects of the movie. I don't know. It's it's just very Kubrickian. That mm-hmm. that. that <laughs> aspect. And when he sort of yeah brings him back, brings Hal back to its childhood, and, oh. and sort of like wakes up and is like, I was activated in 1984 by Dr. Chandra at uh, you know, it's like the details of that are so nice. Yeah, yeah, and and like, and it's just it's actually genuinely disturbing to see like him just like slowly die, degenerate, <laughs> yeah, just just fade into nothing. It's just really, uh, it's really kind of like a moving, sad scene in a lot of ways. What's your read on why Hal does what it does? Well, I've heard different things. My, I mean, my take is that he cannot resolve the fact that he, the. The, the I think honestly it might be the, the what we were talking about the cover up aspect of this whole thing, which tells which says that he's supposed to uh, keep the secret of a mission. I mean that's one aspect I think might be part of it. Like the, he doesn't he has a thing in common with a lot <clears throat> of uh, autistic people and it's this hatred of lying, and, mm. you know. And that kind of reminds me a lot of that. That's interesting. Yeah, you know it's just like this 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 thing like being made to lie and. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, of course, it's also like goes back into Kubrick's kind of sort of like Darwinian view of the, you know, the the, the one species has to kind of like try and conquer the other one in a way. Um, mm-hmm. And so like this new <clears throat> form of life is trying to have its own um, moment like the ape man at the beginning of the movie does, I think. I think that's that's something there, I think. Yeah, it's interesting because it's sort of like... Um... It's not really obvious, Mm-mm. you know. It's an it's an intriguing mystery of the film, and it's never sort of like said like, "Oh, it's you know," it's like parallel to the main plot, but not directly caused by it. It's not like you find out that the aliens made him go crazy or anything. So I just I find it sort of endlessly interesting. And also, I, one of the funny factoids about the the guy who did Hal's voice, uh, what was his name? Douglas Rains was that it or something? Something Rains. Oh yeah, yeah. I think it was something like that. Yeah, yeah. I I remember reading that he he literally just did all those lines in like a day. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's really funny. It's like one of the most iconic characters in film history, and like I know it's such a great performance. So he's so calm and gentle. It's exactly how you imagine a, an AI talking before it tries to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like the mystery of Hal's like motivations for trying to. Uh, murder the uh <laughs> his crewmates yeah <laughs> that is that is something that is never explicitly answered in the film uh, and he does he does murder most of them he shuts down the life support of all the sleeping ones yep he also basically fakes a malfunction to that's or, right yeah 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 for, and the, lure frank pool out also i love that scene with the uh in the pod where they're trying to like avoid being heard by Hal, of course. <laughs> and he reads their lips. Uh, yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, I did read somewhere that that was suggested by, um, was it Kier Dulia or was the other guy? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think one of the actors suggested it. I think I read that too. Great. That's a great example of a collaboration. Yeah. And it's, and it's again, so visual and so kind of thing that you could do in another form, but really works best in a film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could do it in a graphic novel, but you wouldn't have the like lack of sound, you know, like that really sort of sells it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of it being a visual film, I, I think we should go to the effects because, like, that's one aspect in that movie that's freaking incredible to this day. I mean, it still looks amazing. Yeah, so it was uh, Douglas Trumbull, right? Right. Who was responsible for a lot of the effects. I'm not sure exactly how many, uh, or, you know, whether it was sort of all of them or, or what. But yeah, I mean, it, it looks incredible. <clears throat> um, I don't want to be one of those, like, anti-cgi drum beaters <laughs> um but <laughs> but damn like just the, those practical effects the models look so good I, i'm just literally seeing this on an i big giant imax screen they just hold up so well i mean and i mean i'm not like knee-jerk anti-cgi or anything but like it, a movie like 2001 definitely showcases the virtue of having a actual physical object being put in front of the camera <laughs> yeah and also like you know having the the budget and the capabilities to do neat stuff like mount an entire set on like a rotating yeah. axle uh so that you can simulate the spinning uh of of the uh, uh spaceship uh so you can simulate zero gravity um is the kind of thing that is like incredibly expensive and difficult to do uh but <clears throat> is like a, a totally practical effect that uh just gives it so much verisimilitude because it's actually happening. Mm -hmm. You do not see that happening on, you know, unless you're like a James Cameron or, you know, uh, someone who can afford a giant tank of water or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> even like, you know, the Mandalorian, it's all shot on these like sort of like giant LCD back screens. Yeah. I saw the making of that. that was actually I think it's cool. And I think it's great. And it's, you know, it's definitely the future. And I think the Mandalorian looks awesome. Yeah. Um, but they're just like, you know, certain things that just look, you know, it's nice when they're not. You don't have to do them through yeah. a computer. Yeah, you just can't. You just can't beat the the real thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, Although uh, you know, and then the next Mission Impossible, the rumor is they're trying to like film a, a space sequence actually in space. Oh my god, really? Yeah, I'm oh. saying this the day after the Richard Branson. Oh yeah. Thing, <laughs> uh, like if anyone's gonna shoot a, an action scene in space, it's gonna be Tom Cruise. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And who knows? Maybe he'll get picked up. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that'd be hilarious if he'll be the one that may to make contact. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think actually was the plot of one of his movies. The that movie, uh, Oblivion, isn't that like what the plot of this movie is? That's you know, I never saw that one. That's the one that has a really like kind of Star Warsy um, set design, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely early 2010s kind of sci-fi look to it. <laughs> it's not. I mean, it, it was okay. I mean, um, I definitely prefer that uh, the next alien movie he did the one with the the groundhog day ripoff that was really cool oh edge of tomorrow that movie is really is, is, is really good yeah that's a lot of also fun. non uh humanoid aliens non-humanoid aliens um but uh anyway go back to 2001 the yeah so like the, obviously the model work and the set design and production design i mean it's top notch and uh it is kind of a unique situation that movie is in because you don't i mean because he was a producer on it too i think maybe that's why he had some 
leeway. I don't, and of course the sixties were a completely different time too. So. And it was edited multiple times, right? Like didn't he test it a few times and ended up cutting like 20 minutes out of it. And you know, the, the stories of like, you know, basically cause there was an intermission, the hippies would show up like at the intermission and sneak in for free. <laughs> yeah. So they could lie and they would lie on the floor of the theater and watch the like psychedelic ending sequence. Oh, of course. Yeah. It was apparently a really common practice among yeah. hippies. Um, yeah, I think I remember actually they actually altered their um, marketing campaign and actually uh, created an ad ca- campaign with like a big image of the star child that said the ultimate trip. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So it was an interesting, you know, combination of um, cultural forces coming around that movie it being so so grounded in science, but also being like so much more far out than anything else that was happening. I but not you never get the sense that it's like pandering to like the psychedelic market, except for in the marketing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, maybe we can sort of talk, we can sort of like go out by talking about what, and I pose this question to you, what sure. influence do you think this movie has had? Like, where does, where does the, where does 2001 sort of live on oh, in wow. filmmaking? Obviously science fiction. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, even though the, the future that's portrayed in it, it's very clean and sterile looking and obviously like Star Wars and Alien and Blade Runner, all they took the same sort of basic look and then added a bunch of grime on top of it. Totally. But then start, you know, post Star Wars, everything changes in sci-fi filmmaking, right? Like, absolutely. Um, like it just, you know, it's almost like uh, the influence of 2001 kind of ends there for a, at least a, a period. I'm trying to think of anything that I actually took up from what this movie is trying to do. Uh, contact well, maybe <laughs> yeah a little bit contact um it's kind of it's so i mean there's obviously 2010 which is a weird anomaly that i don't know if i want to even think about yeah, um yeah but it's then you have like, like interstellar and you know i feel like so, actually the soderbergh solaris ironically i think takes a lot right, of 2001 right. a little bit what about um, sunshine yeah sunshine that's true yeah even though that like towards the end takes a little bit like a weird left like alien type turn with the mm-hmm. I mean, you might say the first alien. The first alien, um, for sure. Like, especially with the 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 sense of like deliberateness and and the the quiet. Yeah, and, and just the way it's so aesthetic, like like the the well, for one, like the Nostromo doesn't look like an airplane. You know, like like the ship in two thousand and one, it looks like a spaceship, but actually look, which is like an oil rig. <laughs> it's like it's Artful. like what what the spaceship from two thousand one would look like after like you know generations of. <laughs> Of use. Yeah, like if it was also like yeah, being used to like haul oil around or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, like the, the design wise, I mean, there's I think obviously the influence is still there in some a lot of things. Um, thematically, uh, I, you know, I'm trying to think in the '80s, obviously Star Wars cast a big shadow over everything mm-hmm. in the genre world. Um, I'm trying to think. Star Trek, the motion picture. I mean, that was obviously. Oh yeah, totally, totally. What a weird one that is. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's one of those movies. I, I wouldn't say I'm a huge fan of it, but I, I kind of admire that it's such a science fiction film versus like a lot of how the, all the other ones turned out post Con, You know, like it really is a science fiction film about you know discovering something and you know trying to figure something out. Um, uh, Annihilation had a little bit of a 2001 thing, a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, that was more like goopy, like a goopy version. Yeah, uh, totally. Um, and obviously, you know, that also Stalker was Tarkovsky's thing in, in that movie a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. A little bit of the design stuff and Prometheus. Um, and then there's, I think there's some, I think there's a big sci-fi movies that had 
like big 2001 style themes, like something that really went for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not, there's not many. I mean, it's like you got you to put out a lot of money <laughs> to make a movie like that. Um, it's a big swing. Oh, Arrival. There's one. That has yeah, a, little bit, yeah. a little bit there. Um, great, great non... Um, humanoid aliens, yeah. I mean, not humanoid aliens in that one, too. Yeah. <laughs> That's another movie I really like because it hammers home the idea that aliens wouldn't even perceive reality the same way we would and that's, mm-hmm. that's or time or time exactly i mean ad astra recently that movie obviously there really are no aliens in that one that's kind of like the twist of the movie kind of yeah um which i kind of, of admire that movie yeah totally a lot of good stuff but it's sort of uh i don't know it didn't it didn't it hasn't really stuck in my brain unfortunately yeah yeah i really i mean i admired like the technical aspect i mean like it's a gorgeous i mean nearly flawless looking film like the I, I love james gray i mean lost city of zed was one of my favorite movies in the last few years yeah and his other films are, are, are go all great but flawed in their own ways <laughs> yeah yeah i'd asked her really i mean i actually kind of admired that it actually went there like yeah maybe there's just nothing out there i mean yeah i mean that doesn't seem likely to me but i i do like that like it, it, it asks that question it's like hey maybe there's just nothing and I, I i just i think that my ask my problem with that film was just more like it's just that's uh, another fucking sad dad in space movie, you know? Like, I know oh. it ends with like him like on a date with his wife. Like it was just back to earth. Yep. Let's, you know, I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to ride the nuclear explosion home, yep. which makes no sense. And... I'm not going to be, <laughs> I'm not going to be charged for murdering the crew of another spaceship. Nope. And I'm not. And honestly, my worldview doesn't seem to have changed. Nothing's really seemed yeah. to change much about me. I just, doesn't I end guess, well, that one. Yeah, yeah. One of those movies. Ah, oh, the journey's pretty interesting. And Destiny mm-hmm. so much. <laughs> totally. And, and really interesting world building. Yeah, yeah. I did like that. Like the, like the, the pirate, like a pirate moon chase. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that was cool. That was really cool. But yeah, like probably more design wise. And obviously the endless amount of parodies based on it. Totally. Totally. I, oh yeah. One of my favorite like quotations of it was in the show Mad Men. Did you ever see that episode? You know where they had the. I'm trying to remember. I've watched the whole series, but I can't remember the 2001. Remind me. Yeah, well, it's it's like one of the later seasons. Uh, it's that uh, Ginsburg character. Um, he's like, he's watching. I think it's Dra- Don Draper, and uh, I don't. Rem- it's been a while since I've seen it too. They're 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 in that. They've bought. They've gotten that big giant new com- shiny computer for the right for the ad agency, and uh, he's he's watching them talk, and it's like it's kind of obvious, like reference parody to of yes that's right yeah, yeah i know i do remember that now yeah i gotta watch Mad Men again. i think also the amount of parodies and quotations in that way obviously but they haven't really they don't really dampen the film's impact like nope. like uh like you could say like space balls kind of ruined alien a little bit for a lot of people <laughs> like i mean obviously the alien's off still classic but like you know, you, you when you because you know what's coming up with a chestburster scene, you, you know, you know it, it doesn't have this like quite the same impact. I, and I honestly think it's just because Bell Brooks put that little uh, <laughs> Looney Tunes. Hello, uh, my baby. Hello, my, my honey. honey. Hello. But like 2001 has so many parodies of it, but it does not diminish the impact of the actual scenes when you see them on a big screen. Yeah, because it's you know it had a lot of parodies and a lot of imitators. Right. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Like comedy just dies when it's like imitated so much like it's so hard to watch yes old yeah. comedies that have been ripped off so much because the, the joke just wears itself out but this kind of thing i think is a little sturdier there's just something about it like i remember just seeing it on the big screen i mean and finally seeing it and then um 
and it just it really it really hit me really in a weird way like in a, in a good way i mean like a it was just like wow i'm watching 2001 did uh, christopher nolan oversee some weird restoration of it recently? yeah yeah I, that might have been what i saw i mean it, it looked pretty good from what i remember but i mean yeah, I'm sure. The, I'm sure the colors weren't exactly right, or something. I don't know. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. There was some controversy over that. I think. Anyway, uh, but uh, I guess that brings us to the last part of the film: Jupiter and beyond the infinite. When they reach the monolith located outside of Jupiter, Bowman is transported through this. Um, I, I guess it's a stargate, a wormhole, some something like that. Not sure where he's supposed to be going. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like the crazy psychedelic sequence, um, which I which also was really like affecting to me because it just seems so alien and so mm-hmm. distant. And this idea that he's farther from any other human being than any other human being has ever been. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really got me <laughs> when I first saw it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I remember actually feeling quite the same way when um, I first first saw Contact, and then being very disappointed once they got to the, you know, the planet with her father and everything. And that was just like it always comes down to like dad issues for some reason in these movies. And like two thousand one, of course, is free, completely free of that kind of thing. It's very uns- unsentimental. It just really is. Mm-hmm. It really is just like dealing with humanity as a concept more even. <laughs> Um, but I really like that, like, yeah, that uh, watching it on a big screen was pretty crazy. Like seeing just these endless parade of shapes and comings and goings. It's, I mean, it's obviously very psychedelic. I mean, in a lot of ways and, uh, and it's no wonder the hippies latched onto it. Um, yeah. I just love that feeling of just being, you're just watching just colors and shapes for like however long it goes. Like, was it 10 minutes maybe? Impressions. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then you the reflection up... of the lights on his face, which is which is really great. That's great. I love that. Like that's like just periodically cutting back to that just to show you know he's there, and then you know, and then arrive of course in this like hotel room, and it's just like it's so yeah. jarring in the best possible way. It's just so cool and creepy, and and like that music in the background. Um, who's it? Who's it? Who's doing it's that? Ligeti, right? Ligeti, yeah, yeah, Ligeti yeah. stuff, and it's just so alien sounding, and it's it's just such a. And you know, I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> it's so cool. It just really, it just conveys alienness in a way that you just is it, just rarely equaled. Um, and uh, you know, and then there's like, you know, of course the famous, you know, he sees himself old, old, and then the, you know, he's lying in bed, and then you hear that music come back up, and he's you know the star child hovering over the bed, and then you know, yeah, it, I love it. Yeah, it really, oh God, it just, it gives me feelings when I watch it in a weird way. And I mean, I know that sounds corny, but like, I really, like, it makes me feel like, like the kind of awe you feel like when you go into like a, uh, like a really amazingly beautiful building or something, or like a, you see a really amazing piece of art in a museum. It just has that kind of feeling like it is, it is like almost a religious kind of feeling. I love mm. it. It's transcendental. Yeah, it really is. I mean, and and I, I and I and then for me, this is. I mean, it's so rare that you get that in a movie. I mean, so, yeah. Was there ever a better pairing of you know image and sound than the also Sprach Zarathustra? Oh God, that yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like it's just too good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's perfect, and also thematically. Yeah, and you know the story that these are all like all the classical music in the film are, are temp tracks. 
Yeah. Um, and then Cooper got attached man. to them. And I just can't imagine this with like a regular score. No, and I mean it's it's a, it's a, like a cliche almost in filmmaking is that you always get too attached to the temp tracks. Yeah. And this is like the ultimate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Example of that. Let me see if I can yeah. find the score. Uh, Alex North. Okay, Alex North. Yeah. So apparently there is like a there is a release of the unused score. That would be interesting then to check out. Um, it's like one of those things where like it's just like that serendipitous like yeah if the temp tracks just work better I'm just gonna use it. I need to I need to hear this original one though it's on Spotify somewhere. Oh, it is on Spotify. Okay, yeah, the, the one the Jerry North uh, the the Jerry Goldsmith version. It's really one of the worst album covers I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> but, what does it look like? It's so it was it was recorded ninety three. It's got a very nineties like uh, see the computer. Oh yeah, Photoshop like airbrush. Yeah, you have to you have to see. It. Look, it's Alex North two thousand and one. It's it's really. Okay. Uh, I'll check it. I'll check it. It out. looks like a rave CD from the nineties. Oh, of, of course, of course. So you know, and then you have that last shot, and it of the star child. You know, I mean, I just the, just the fact that this movie makes such big bold imagery like use of that it's like audacious in a way because it's just so it like it's so big it's so like on the nose even you know it's like it's a new it's the babe new infant form of humanity but it's just fucking powerful it's such a crazy way to end the movie yeah big baby floating in space (laughs) yeah yeah it's like the ultimate like you know you gamble on making the biggest gesture possible and it fucking pays off yeah (laughs) i love that (laughs) i mean i I mean i I find it interesting when it fails too but like i I do like it when it's i mean obviously when it's successful it's just like it's i mean it's just transcendent i mean i I don't know and i i just i I literally i mean again i literally cried seeing this in the theater it really made me like it it stirred some powerful feelings in me in that way um and uh that's something that uh uh i'll never forget and um, I had a nice time seeing that with my dad. Um, That's great. But like me and my dad, uh, I've always bonded over sci-fi movies and stuff like that. So that's something. And it was, it was a wonderful experience seeing that movie. And I really did appreciate the intermission too, because, you know, I had to pee real bad. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, I, uh, yeah, no, it's, for me, it was a dad thing too, this movie. So it's, it's a real dad movie, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Probably the, the ultimate dad movie, but the best kind of dad movie. Um, but, uh, yeah. So like, do you have anything, any other takes on the movie or anything around it? I, I think, uh, I think I've expounded mostly what I have to say about it. Um, if you want to read my food analysis, you can go to my, <laughs> my newsletter at markslutsky.substack.com and search for 2001, a gustatory odyssey. Yeah. It's a uh, fantastic uh, newsletter, by the way. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah. I re- uh, there was like one piece uh, from a few months ago you did about, um, it was like the computer program, the computer programs that the Vatican worked on. And stuff yeah. Like. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, that, that again, tying together, you know, technology and, uh, you know, sort of re- religious or quasi religious themes together. Um, <laughs> yeah. Really, uh, yeah. It's all it's also online, so if your listeners want to check it out, they can they can visit it there. But uh, it's just uh, it's just where I sort of write about my obsessions, which this movie is one of them. Where can people find any of your like your short films or anything like that? Online? Yeah, you just kind of Google my name and look for Mark Slutsky Final Offer or Mark Slutsky uh, Never Happened or The Decelerators, 
and um, and you'll find my films, all of which are sort of, or most of which are, are, are sort of have a bit of a, a sci-fi bent. So if you enjoyed me talking about this movie, you may enjoy them. Yeah, listeners will be in for a treat. I, um, they're very entertaining little short films. Thank you so much. So it's much. been a real pleasure talking about this awesome movie with you. Yeah, thank you. I, 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 uh, you're welcome back anytime. Uh, any other movie that you might think of or want to do, just let me know. Well, uh, I would love to come back. Sure. Um, also, I have just made a Spotify playlist if somebody wants to check that out. To tie oh, really? Yeah, it's called Space Jams. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. It's you know it's it's a it's a typical kind of like combination of uh, famous space movie themes and and alien and UFO and so it's a it's a good mixture of genres like you get all kinds of stuff on there. So. Great, and I guess you're gonna have to do the next the new Space Jam. You'll have to do an episode about that. Okay. <laughs> If you have any constructive comments, movie suggestions, or stories of your own otherworldly sightings or encounters, drop us a line at saucercinemapod at gmail.com.